Gratitude and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. When someone close to us dies, having a reminder of them that you can see every day and keep close to you can be a great comfort. So it's no surprise I'm drawn to Lori Mason's memorial quilts. Each piece that she creates is thoughtfully designed with the deceased loved one in mind. She gets to know about them and transforms garments like their favorite Hawaiian shirts, their judges' robes, uniforms, and other personal fabrics into a piece of art that reflects their lives. Head over to LoriMasonDesign.com and check out examples of how she honors each individual's unique life with her art. Her process is well-documented and will give you a sense of the curiosity and intention that she brings to each quilt project. It's a wonderful gift we can give ourselves, snuggling under a quilt that's an artful remembrance and celebration of those we love. Head over to LoriMasonDesign.com or to our show notes to learn more. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness explores the different ways we grieve, the gratitude that allows us to persevere, and the greatness we discover along the way, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. The coronavirus has required that we make big changes in the way we live. We are collectively weathering this chaos on a global level. The virus has shown just how connected we are. Exercising self-quarantine may be one of the greatest exhibits of our collective humanity. From our homes, we pour through news reports, read about the amazing dedication of grocery and medical workers, and learn about flattening curves. We share a common feeling that life has changed, coupled with an uncertainty for how we will return to normal or what new normal will be. Each of us is missing our routines, commitments, weddings, birthday parties, funerals, and so much that we plan for. And as we sacrifice those things that we had counted on, we as a global community are experiencing grief. This podcast was born from the desire to normalize talking about grief something we all experience at some time in our lives, yet so many of us shy away from. When I was feeling alone in my own grief, I wanted to connect with others who are also open to talking about it. I'm seeing the evidence of our collective grief in my friends' social media feeds and in my neighbors' faces when we can't give each other a hug. Even in isolation, I'm finding community through Zoom call happy hours, Google Hangout check-ins, texting, and old-fashioned phone calls, listening to the extraordinary struggles of those I care about. This episode features three individual stories of surviving, adapting, and grieving during the pandemic. I spoke to Cian, a music coordinator, Virginia, a science journalist, and Renee, a Portland restaurant owner. They share the pain and struggles of their unique experiences, and their stories are united by perseverance and determination. I speak to Sian McKeel about what it's like to undergo chemotherapy treatment for breast cancer while being separated from her closest relatives, 
We also discuss her work with the Children's Cancer Association music program, My Music Rx. When I walk into the chemo appointments, a lot has changed at the hospital, but mm-hmm. I've only been doing chemo for two weeks right now. So I guess I don't have the biggest point of reference what it was like before the isolation in the hospitals, but all of the books that I had read about chemo prep and, you know, the hospital and everything that one goes through when they're diagnosed with breast cancer is like their number one thing to tell you is always take a buddy, you know, a family member or friend to sit with you, especially during the initial couple of appointments because they can be pretty intense. And because the hospital is letting no visitors in at all, you know, I had, I've been going solo. And when you walk into the hospital, there's a couple of folks there right before you even enter through the lobby in full face masks and head protection. And they smile at you, but they just hold a thermometer up to your neck to get a temperature to make sure that you're not running any sort of fever so that you can make it to point B. They've moved everything from the chemo lab down to the first floor where you actually check in and you don't touch anything. And then you're escorted by another sort of hazmat person in the elevator so you don't touch any of the buttons and you're completely isolated and don't touch anything until you get into your chemo chair where they administer the drugs. And there again, all the poor nurses and staff are also in face masks and you know, headgear and those sorts of things. And, you know, you can tell that they're smiling and trying to be comforting underneath all of their PPE, but it's a little jarring. Yeah. And you certainly do wish that there was somebody with you and and everybody's so far apart. It, all, all that I had read and my friends who've gone through the experience had always said, like, you develop a bit of camaraderie with the folks that are getting treatments at the same time with you. You know, you can chat and sort of commiserate and share stories and experiences, but there's none of that since we're all so placed apart. So it's a little more isolating, I think, than, you know, most folks that have gone through chemo in the past. I mean, not to mention that it's already a tough thing to do and it's already kind of isolating, right? Yeah. You know, for me, just kind of having been prepared the past few weeks through the staff and doctors and everything in the oncology unit, I think it was more jarring for my family, my sister especially, who, you know, had envisioned herself taking the month or so off work anyway, just to be with me through the treatments. And for her not to be able to be there has been really, really difficult on her too, to, you know, not, not be here through those things. That powerless feeling when somebody you love and care for so much, that inability to come into action for them. Yeah one of the hardest things. Definitely my family. I was diagnosed mid-February before things got really serious with the pandemic and I got together with my family and everybody had envisioned sort of, you know, going up to my mom's river cabin together when I was feeling up for the drive to get there and sort of just hanging out by the river and being all together. And it sort of changed what it looks like in terms of being able to each other for sure, which is really kind of the most challenging part about it. So, and being apart from your family, including your own daughter. Yeah. You haven't seen your daughter in how long? She and her father have come by. They're on the other side of the fence when they come to visit and I can't hold her, 
hugger mm-hmm. or anything. And it's kind of, that's, it's pretty depressing just because it, the weather hasn't been amazing. And so we just sort of sit there and nod at each other. And it's like, mm-hmm. what have you been up to? Nothing. How about you? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Cause she's a teenager, right? She's a teenager. Yeah. She's a teenager. And Oh, she's just really isolated from her friends. And fortunately we have technology and she's able to FaceTime with them and keep up. But, it's different. She just wants to hang out with them and she just wants to be home with me and back to regular stuff. How long will it be before you guys can be together? Well, and what are the doctors saying? Well, initially, the doctors were recommending 14 days, two weeks of isolation, both for my daughter and my sister and anyone who wants to come stay with me or be with me. And that sort of seemed to change pretty radically at the hospital yesterday with kind of more concrete information that they're coming out with of people Mm -hmm. being able to carry the virus for three, four weeks without showing any symptoms at all. So Mm -hmm. I was advised yesterday to wait another week, you know, at at least another seven days before we try that again, which is, I I just had to make those phone calls this morning to my daughter and my sister who were Mm -hmm. not thrilled about it. But at the same time, of course, there's a huge degree of understanding that there's not much we can do. And yeah, it's scary being told you're like in the top percentage of people whose immunities are so compromised that there's not much choice. Because the chemo does that to you. Yeah. Like in, mm-hmm. in normal chemo, you're you're not, you know, supposed to be exposed to anyone with a cough or a cold or anything like that. And, you know, they advise you to take walks, but not be around people a whole lot. You really got in under the wire too. Yeah. My sweet doctor yesterday was lamenting. I mean, the hospital staff, you just feel for them so hard. I I can't imagine the strain that they're under watching all the chemo babies come in and have to go through the treatment and then knowing, you know, how risky it is, just chemo in general, Mm -hmm. in addition to everything, there's a lot of tears on the staff ends of things. My doctor was shaken um, yesterday telling me that, you know, he is, he's really, really glad that I got in when I did, because apparently the hospital has ceased doing mammograms and biopsies and it makes him extremely nervous and concerned because women that, you know, are in the position of having felt a lump or actually, you know, having had a mammogram that had come up suspicious, but waiting because they're not able to do a biopsy to tell them one way or another if, you know, it is malignant or benign or just, you know, a lump or whatever, all of those people have to wait. I'm not sure exactly if if they deem it an elective surgery or what they're doing, mm-hmm. but they're stopping screenings for some pretty normal things that by the time the hospitals are open to doing normal screenings and biopsies and things again, a lot of these women are going to be... Or even being like, if you felt a lump, you might feel oh, freaked sure. out that you couldn't do anything about it. Right. right. Yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, that to say sort of fibrosis, uh, for women, especially who have nursed or whatever, is really common. And, right. you know, it could be nothing for sure. Oh, but, you know, yeah, you can't put your mind at ease either. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, 
for certain that weeding is the hardest part about it between just getting the mammogram and the biopsy and waiting for those results is hell enough. I could definitely, you know, see the nervousness in the doctor's eyes and, you know, him, him knowing as well as the rest of the staff that hopefully when things have settled down here in the next few months, they'll be able to see, you know, all the women that they need to see in a timely manner. I'm so amazed at how what you're going through right now and how you're able to talk about it so clearly and objectively. Well, I feel like I am in a position where I'm certainly grieving not seeing my daughter and not seeing my sister and not seeing my niece who are people that are in my life daily, you know, just Mm -hmm. as like my close, close family and best friends. But at the same time, I do have so much support from everyone. For the past nearly 10 years, I've assisted with Children's Cancer Association, their their music program, My Music Rx, and the, the CEO, Regina Ellis, who started CCA and My Music Rx has been just an amazing support and amazing resource for me. So I feel really, really fortunate in that way that I do feel like I have some of the best support that you could probably get in Portland right now, just through my contacts there. And it does calm me and it it does make me a little bit more objective, just having worked in the program and kids facing terminal illnesses and cancer and their family, as well as other serious pediatric ailments. The world of cancer has been, you know, nothing new to me. And yeah having the diagnosis has certainly given me a pretty different perspective on the whole experience that is enriched me, you know, a hundredfold. My immediate response when I've had friends with a diagnosis has always been to be like, well, how can I help you? And mm. that's such a nebulous thing. And it's even right. more nebulous now with the, the quarantine right. because people can't do what I would normally do and what they would normally do, which is bring food baskets and come visit me and yeah. bring flowers and mm-hmm. those sorts of things. And, you know, those are cut off for the most part now. And the whole question of how can I help you or what can I do to support you or what do you need? You know, I've been able to get very specific. <laughs> those things. Yeah. I need TP. Yeah. Please exactly. bring TP. You know, and it's interesting too. I mean, obviously, I haven't been in a hospital to, to visit any wards lately, but you know, a lot of these kids, especially you know, kids that are have been dealing with this just for years and years and spending so much of their year in hospital. You know, I don't know how it, how it has affected like family members being in the room with them, but at the same time, in some ways, it must feel not to speak for them, but a little bit business as usual in that. They, you know, they are used to the beeping machines and nurses coming in and poking with them and prodding with them and all of those things and maybe a lot more hazmat gear and everything with the nurses and doctors being in the room. But it probably doesn't feel that hugely different than it used to be. If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, 
Let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three. I also speak to science journalist Virginia Gouin about how we arrived at this unprecedented moment. I am grieving the fact that science continues to be willfully ignored in this country and to our detriment. And we're seeing the degree to which we are going to suffer. And that's what's really hard because I've covered climate change for 20 years and there are just so many painful parallels here. You know, the, di- the difference is that climate change always felt far away and which of course it's not, but it felt that way. Whereas even in the midst of this fast moving, devastating pandemic, world leaders still choose to ignore science and facts and we're just all going to suffer all the more for it. So it's like having this front row seat to this unfolding misery. It's almost like this premature or anticipatory grieving because I just, I know what's about to happen. And, and it just takes this form of like raw, white, hot anger. (laughs) I mean, it feels like what's really bad has happened, but you say what's about to happen. What are so many of us not paying attention to right now? And just to be clear, you mentioned this country, but I also heard you say leaders around the world, too. No, I mean, there's there's enough blame to go around for everybody. But the two biggies are China and the U.S., and they willfully ignored what was staring them right in the face. And China withheld information that was crucial for everyone around the world to get prepared. And then the mm-hmm. U.S. ignored it. <laughs> and so, so just to set the stage, two years ago, and I remember this happening as, as a science journalist, two years ago, Trump got rid of the U.S. pandemic response unit. And everyone from infectious disease to national security experts made clear that when the pandemic eventually comes, and it would, the U.S. would not be ready. And here we are two years later. It is just gobsmacking that this is happened this swiftly and under this person's watch. I mean, well, you can even look at it by comparing two countries. South Korea and the U.S. both announced their first case of COVID-19 on the same day. South Korea traced every individual and quarantined them, and they are getting back to normal. Their kids are back in school. Their economy is not cratered. They have had limited deaths. And granted, they're a smaller country, but still, it's just staggering the difference. The president of the U.S. told people it would magically go away in the summer with no evidence to that. And this morning, we have over 5,000 deaths. And the best case scenario, which many people think is unlikely, is that we'll have 100 to 200,000 deaths in this country. And so it's just a staggering amount of pain and suffering that could have been avoided. It seems to me that the culpability is with so many who choose to disregard science. He has just absolutely ignored science from day one, whether it was climate change, whether it's infectious diseases, you name it, he's ignored it. And that sets the stage for why so many other people can just ignore it. I mean, the messaging is just, I'm going to go with my gut, or you know better than the scientists or expertise is irrelevant. And that is something that a lot of people have 
taken hold of and seem to think that they know better now. You see all these people go to spring break in Mexico, probably taking the disease with them to Mexico and coming back with it. And so it's just tragic. It's absolutely tragic that in a country that put a man on the moon and used science and technology to build this economy over decades, now is almost borderline medieval in its disregard for it. What's driving you right now to report on this rather than just say, I give up? (laughs) (laughs) Two things. The medical professionals that are risking their lives, like her friend Mary, that's huge. And just to hold people accountable. Yeah. And then we have to use this as an opportunity to learn and to get back to a place where we heed reality and make decisions that protect people. I mean, I just, I can't fathom that we can stay in this space any longer. Like we have, something's got to change. Best case scenario, do you see this waking people up to science? Like, is this the wake up call to science? I hope so. If there is a silver lining at all in any of this, it's the hope that now we understand on a level that we never could have otherwise, the life is different now. And we can take this as an opportunity to reevaluate our sense of risk and use what is now an urgent moment as an opportunity to take advantage of all that knowledge that's been gained over the last couple of decades and reshape society to lower risks, not only of pandemics, but also of climate change and habitat destruction and all of the, you know, setting the stage for the next pandemic. I mean, we can just kind of use this, hopefully, as a way to make better decisions going forward. That brings me hope. I can't tell you how incredibly grateful I am. All these writers and journalists who have been tirelessly talking about all these things, even though they've been demonized by deniers. So I'm super grateful for what you're doing too. Yeah, I think we should be super grateful. We have Tony Fauci, who is getting death threats and has to increase his security because apparently we're still in this moment where speaking about truth and reality garners death threats. It's pretty terrifying. I loathe the term social distancing because right now we need pe- we need each other so badly. I'm like, why is it that we are not calling it physical distancing? I agree with you. You know, and I think the proliferation of Zoom happy hour <laughs> speaks to why we do need each other so much right now, I and mean, that we should call it physical distancing. So I agree with you that we need to rework that. It's not like this is a couple weeks, couple months, Mm-mm. and we're, we're done. I mean, nope. what is it going to be like until a vaccine is available? This is definitely a long game. And the most optimistic things that I have read, that others have written about, basically what we're going to see is that we're going to have this intense period right now. This is the brunt of it. We're going through the really bad part. And that's going to hopefully lift, we'll get some level of normalness back maybe in the summertime. And I don't know what form that will take, but what is apparent is that we'll see periods of where we can kind of start to come together. The restrictions on gatherings will be relaxed to a degree, and then we'll be monitoring ICU visits 
And so as soon as we start to see spikes, everyone's going to have to physically distance again. And that could happen three to four times over the next year. And that's the most optimistic time frame with which we could get a vaccine in place. And so it's going to be a lot of communication and management of not overwhelming the hospital system. That is going to be these periods of spikes where, you know, as soon as we start to see a lot of cases start to take off, then everyone's going to have to separate again. I feel like this has been a very quick lesson in how we can exercise our humanity and do this. I know that now that I've done this, that I think we can do this. And I think it's a real wake-up call to all of us how to how to make sure that we're not going to return to the, to an old normal. Take it as a moment to figure out what is the world like that we want to live in and make it happen that way. I mean, that I love that meme that's going around where people are looking at the distance outside and looking at the lack of cars and everything else as a sign of love for protect mm-hmm. and protection for everyone around us. And so if we can use that as a guide and use facts and science to shape what it is that we can have our society look like going forward, I think hopefully we'll be all the better for it. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness. Have you told your friends about us yet? Word of mouth is an important way for us to reach more listeners. So spread the word and consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Lastly, I speak to Renee Gorham about making difficult choices as a business owner. When this whole crazy life shift happened, and so quickly, my husband John and I made the decision to close all of our restaurants for dining in, and we personally wanted to go and tell as many staff members face-to-face that they were going to be laid off, which was a, a heartbreaking decision, but absolutely necessary. And what it felt like was... Not only was my world ending, but I had to be the bearer of the news that we pretty much had to shut down their world as they knew it. You know, I'll I'll never see them in the same way again, and they'll never see anything in the same way again. And that brought so much pain and sorrow, and it was a very bittersweet moment watching their response. Some people cried. Some people immediately packed up and moved to wherever their homes were. Back with family? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I had about four or five employees just pack up and and move out of the state, move home to be with with their loved ones. There's so much fear and uncertainty happening all around us that I I think that's a very natural progression, a natural decision. You'll never see them quite the same. What I mean by that is is everybody's perspective just took a, a major relaunch. And I think perspective is so important, especially when, for myself, I see what I offer, uh, employment and knowledge and uh, a lifestyle that we've all become really accustomed to. The restaurant industry is so much like a family that when you tell your family, 
that you're breaking up for the temporary time, it feels like a breakup. It's like a, a stab in the heart. And so as I have been their financial lifeline, you know, their response, of course, is to not blame me. Of course, they they understand that this is a decision that had to be made, but they'll never see me the same because I just essentially told them that they're not going to get their paycheck and they're not going to come and serve our guests. And hopefully we'll have them all back. My goal is to certainly rehire every one of them back, but we just have so much fear and so much uncertainty. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis. It says, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. Mm. And they really do go hand in hand. Um, Yeah. It's a heavy burden to carry. And that's, I think, what's so tough about a situation that you're in is, I mean, not only are you grieving what you've built and all this hard work that you've put in, but then it's not just caring for yourself and your own interests at this moment. It's also having this responsibility and caring for all these other people at the same time. I feel like I host my guests and I host my staff and hosting them is just as important, if not more important. And then I also feel this great sense of loss for the industry, the restaurant industry, as we know it and how meaningful it is to so many people who connect around food and family and togetherness. And while our dining rooms are empty right now, my hope is that I can still share that feeling of connection and that hospitality with everybody that we're distanced from during this time. While you're grieving what's happened to the industry and your restaurant family and your business, I think it's safe to say that there's a whole heck of a lot of people out there that are grieving not being able to do that, to go out to eat and to go to their favorite restaurants and to connect with other people. The dining room table is symbolically where we all come together, right? Yeah, absolutely. That feeling of being in a crowded space with the hum of the dining room and the clanking of dishes, like I found myself over the last you know few days really just missing that buzz, that energy, yeah. and that feeling of anonymity when you're in a room of strangers and feeling like you're a part of the whole and just kind of being present in that moment. I miss that so much. Maybe watching someone getting engaged or watching people celebrate a anniversary or birthday and kind of get to be like sort of this master of ceremony in a way. God, that's such a, a great way to put it. Mm-hmm. I also feel like there's this intersection of grief and guilt. We took for granted these celebratory moments, whether they were happy or sad moments, you know, we get to witness people living their lives and sharing their lives with us while we host them. And and I feel this little bit of guilt, like, you know, why wasn't I more present with my daughter before this happened? Why wasn't I more present for my staff and my guests or even for myself? I think, you know, my response to grief is servant leadership. I want to share that love. And that's my defense mechanism. My natural survivor mentality comes out. And I'm feeling that a lot right now. But I also look back and have this guilt of, 
why didn't I do it better? <laughs> why wasn't mm-hmm. I more prepared for this? Why wasn't I ready with a backup plan? Not that anybody could have planned for this. It's funny that you bring up guilt. When I've spoken to other people about their grief relating to the death of a loved one, I've heard that guilt too about why wasn't I more present? Why didn't I do that better? Why wasn't I more supportive of them when I had the chance? I think the other thing that's interesting about guilt is now that we've all kind of accepted this new reality that we're living in right now, you have these moments of happiness and your mind is quiet and you find yourself laughing. And then you immediately feel guilty, like, oh, I shouldn't be having mm-hmm. these these good feelings right now. We should not commiserate with each other. I think there's a big difference between compassion and commiserating. And I want to fall on the compassionate side. The difference between commiserating and compassion. I really like that. I was sitting with my husband out in our yard the other day, and we just found ourselves having this kind of normal conversation. It wasn't consumed with how heavy the world feels right now. And he looked at me and he almost started crying and he just said, God, is is this okay? Mm. And I said, yes, baby. It's like, it's like when a loved one dies, you get together with your family and you talk about the good memories. And I think it's okay for us to do that now. But you are also, you're not just sitting in the backyard. You, you're in action right now. I mean, you're. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Quiet moments don't come very, very frequently. I, like I said, I'm a, I'm a doer, and I think that grief can also stimulate action and and be a motivator. So, how are you motivated right now? Well, I've always felt this really deep obligation to not just feed my guests and host my staff, but to be a really active member and an advocate for our community. And I think that right now people are isolated and they're alone. They're missing those connections. And then there's so many people in need. People don't know how to cook or they don't have the means to cook. They might not have access to the food. I have great partnerships with nonprofits. And so what I'm starting to do and and how we responded from the very beginning of this crisis was to start feeding people in need. And we started giving away free food bags with all of the food inventory that we had from nine restaurants that just closed. We wow. started feeding homeless that are sheltered in the uh, Oregon Convention Center. I'm starting to put together a program where people can sponsor and donate to feeding people like at the Portland Homeless Family Solution Center and Rose Haven and Pear. You know, I think we have to be innovative and take this moment for what it is. And, you know, the first thing I ask myself is, how can I keep my staff employed, even even a small portion of them? And how can I make a connection to support the restaurant community and all of the farmers and purveyors and people right. sitting on product that's going to go to waste? And then I see this huge need in the nonprofit world where people they don't have the capacity or the safety protocols in place to keep serving those that they support within their organizations. And I want to be the conduit to kind of fill that gap. I love that you brought up the whole supply chain because it's so easy to recognize that this is impacting the restaurants, but yeah, the farmers. In the restaurant industry, waste is like 
the worst possible scenario, you know? And right now I have a great sense of loss for any food that's being thrown away when there's so many people that need it. The farmers, the winemakers, the distillers, the brewers, all of a sudden there's this huge cog in the wheel that is supporting so many people and families that filter down from the restaurant industry. It's heartbreaking. Well, I love that you didn't just say, okay, screw it. I'm going to go sit in my backyard. And I understand that that is a totally realistic and and plausible and understandable response for so many people. We all have to decide right now how we want to respond to this and taking care of yourself and your loved ones first is, is the right way. Any sense of judgment is really not cool. I do understand anyone who just needs to just check out for a bit and, and ultimately take care of themselves right now, because if you're not paying attention to what's happening within you, it's hard for you to take care of others. Yeah. I think we're all naturally just as, as human beings, we're all incredibly resilient and incredibly adaptable. And we also like to plan for things and there's just no way you could plan for something like this. So I think empathy is what will guide us out of this right now as a society. It feels to me like there's a whole lot of empathy out there because this is something we are all going through together. Yeah. And I think that that's the silver lining. And I try to look forward to see those silver linings right now. Like if we emerge from this as a more compassionate and thoughtful and caring society, then this won't be for nothing. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness was created by me, Sarah Shaul, and is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn with music by Samantha Jensen. Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Word of mouth helps us find new listeners, so please leave us a review and let your friends know about us. More information about this episode and how to contact us can be found in our show notes and at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You'll also find links to follow us on Instagram, Patreon, and Facebook. Join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you. Sharing a meal with others is my favorite place to engage in deep, meaningful, and fun conversations. On the Four Top Podcast, three thought leaders join host Catherine Cole for a fast-moving roundtable discussion of the hot-button topics in food and beverage. The show covers a wide array of topics from farming to fine dining. The Four Top is a James Beard and IACP award-winning national food and beverage podcast presented by OPB for NPR One. Start listening now at thefortop.org, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.